0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined, as always, by the second most handsome doctor in the world, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. Ready to do this. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a, a different style of podcast. What we're doing here is kind of doing a 10,000 foot view of our research review. So every month uh, we've been publishing a research review to our research review subscribers where each one of us, uh, yourself, myself, Dr. Michael Ray, Dr. Derek Miles, we all pick an article and we review it, give context and a lot of background information to try to come up with some practical takeaways. So what I thought we would do is do like a specialized podcast each month. This is the first month uh, where we kind of talk about uh, what we looked at, and maybe some uh, practical takeaways for people at home, and also encourage folks to obviously subscribe if you want a more in-depth look at stuff that we're geeking out on. So we've already recorded all the segments from everybody else, and I didn't—I just didn't want to talk to myself, is the yeah. thing. Like, I, <laughs> so, so we get to flip the script. Normally I'm asking you the questions, now you get to ask me the questions, which is, I'm a little nervous, but, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to take this temporary promotion to host of the podcast and along with it, uh, most handsome doctor in the world while I'm while I'm at it. And then <laughs> I can pass the reins back if you want once you're hosting again. So uh, what, was the, what was the topic that you looked at this month?
0: Yeah, so I've been uh, geeking out a lot uh, recently on protein recommendations and specifically um, how much protein we should be recommending individuals to get to maximize protein. Uh, both training adaptations and health. And so the further down the rabbit hole you get, um you start looking at different sources of protein, so plant-based uh protein versus animal protein and then how that all shakes out within these recommendations. And so I think a, a, a maybe a more old school um thought would be that hey, if you're a vegan or vegetarian, like you're just cutting yourself off of the knees here, you're you're short you're shorting yourself on gains, like you're compromising your results because you're not willing to eat animal-based protein. And so, I think even I probably had said that at some point, or at least inferred that at some point, you know, many years ago. And and I think the more I've learned about this and kind of the further down the rabbit hole I've gone, uh, the more I've realized that that's probably not an accurate view. So, this particular study that I looked at was a uh, came out this year in January. They basically looked at the training adaptations that uh, individuals got uh, from either supplementing with whey uh, or pea protein. And the whole premise was that they were all getting at least 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And so effectively, you're just matching these individuals for a fairly high level of protein intake, especially when you consider that the RDA is you know, 0.8 to one gram per kilo body weight, depending on which uh, what demographic you're looking at, you know, adult versus pregnant individual versus older individual.
1: Well, That's kind uh, of interesting because I agree that our thought on this has probably swung in a couple different directions over the past like almost ten years, uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, there's still going to be some people in the audience who hear you say. 1.6 grams per kilo and like scoff at it as a low or an inadequate protein intake for a lifter who's get, has to have you know 300 grams of protein otherwise they're not going to get what they need what they need to adapt
0: yeah i think
1: so i don't know where that comes from other than maybe like the
0: old like wider joe Wider kind of or maybe it's weeder I, I don't know. I wasn't around back then. So, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, that, that sort of thinking where when protein supplements just came out and obviously the protein manufacturers were saying, you need all this protein because muscles are made of protein. So, more protein, the better. And, you know, it seemed like one of the battlegrounds that we were fighting for a long time was like, hey, high protein intake is not, you know, higher than RDA the rda recommended intake is not associated with like negative outcomes with respect to health like that was one battle we were fighting like sure you know eating a bunch of proteins not bad for your kidneys eating a bunch of proteins not bad for your liver although again how would that (laughs) (laughs) you're overwhelming the liver with you know all these amino acids so um yeah that was one battleground we were fighting and then it yeah it seems like the pendulum has swung to the other side where now we're kind of fighting this i don't want to you know insult people and say it's bro science but This idea that you need massive, massive amounts of protein in order to maximize training adaptations. And uh, I think one of the most interesting and most relevant pieces that recently came out was the Morton et al. study. I think this is from 2017 or 2018, where effectively they reviewed all of the studies on protein intake and training, resistance training adaptations. And effectively what they found was that doses higher than 1.6 grams per kilo – Like were not associated with any increased improvement in muscle hypertrophy or strength. Now there are limitations to the studies that they looked at. You know, as far as sample size, the heterogeneous you know methodologies used in the actual studies that they they analyzed in their meta-analysis. But you would expect if there was this you know clear and present benefit to be had by mass, you know, having these huge doses of protein. That there'd be a dose response effect all the way up is what you'd expect, right? Yeah, correct. So, And they didn't find anything like that. Now, within that study, they do also kind of yield to the higher protein intake a little and say, you know, it may be necessary for individuals who are engaging in very strenuous activity very frequently um, that they might need. More protein than the 1.6 grams per kilo per day, and and you know there's some
1: evidence out there supporting that. Uh, you think now, when about, you say when you say that they're engaging in very strenuous activity, would an example of that be like doing three sets of five three times a week? <laughs> uh, no, we're talking to like two a days, uh, you know, five or six okay. days
0: a week. Gotcha. Yeah, Just to clarify. Yeah, and so I mean, most of the studies when they're looking at people uh, like these again, strenuously, vigorously training athletes and and needing higher protein intakes they're they're trying to figure out are these people in a positive nitrogen balance which they you they can you can be can be measured a bunch of different ways one is um by actually collecting you know stool samples and urine samples and looking at nitrogen content there and then measuring that versus the amount of nitrogen going in or you can do uh, amino acid tracer studies there's a bunch of different ways to look at this um but effectively if you're in a a, a positive nitrogen balance you're retaining more nitrogen, which is the uh, uh, element that is unique to protein. Um, if you're in a negative nitrogen balance, you're actually losing protein. So this is one way to, to kind of look at this from a, a broad perspective. And so in some of the studies where you find where people are in a negative nitrogen balance, they're taking two, 2.5 grams per kilo of uh, protein per day, um, all the way up even to 3 grams per kilo of uh, of of body weight uh, protein per day and they're still in a negative nitrogen balance but the universal like, kind of thread that ties those studies together is that they're losing weight like if you're losing weight yeah. it's very difficult to be in a positive nitrogen balance and further when you look even closer at some of those studies not all of them but some of them these people tend to be either bodybuilders who are dieting for a show or, or uh, at weight class athletes who are trying to lose weight to fit into uh their weight class and so you're thinking about relatively lean or in some cases very lean individuals who are training a bunch who again who are losing weight and so it's really hard to be in a positive nitrogen balance or in other words build muscle yeah. in those states no matter how much protein you're
1: taking in or not just you know? build muscle but not avoid losing you know muscle or lean body mass is, is yeah difficult exactly as well yeah yeah so like the uh the standard
0: you know, ratio that's quoted in the literature over and over and over again is about for every pound you lose, or whatever uh, uh, ma- uh, you know, uh, weight uh, that you want to uh, measure, it's seventy five percent of it ends up being body fat, and twenty five percent of it ends up being lean body mass. Some of that's muscle tissue, uh, some of it's water, some of it's glycogen. You know, anything that's not fat mass is fat free mass or lean body mass. So, if, if you're losing weight, it's going to be really hard. To uh, not be losing any muscle at all, and so yeah. I think if you just looked at those studies where people are you know eating all this protein and they're still in a negative nitrogen balance, then yeah, you could practically take away from that. Like, see, you just need all this protein. That's what you need. But <laughs> there's there's uh, you know I think that's a, a relatively restricted view on this, and I, I think that it's unlikely that there's any protein intake that you could you know, reasonably take in that would put somebody in a positive nitrogen balance when they're losing weight, particularly if they're very lean and if they're training a bunch.
1: Right. Um, so, so what so, did this study end up looking like if, you, if you're,
0: if you're ready to transition to it? But yeah, um. sure, yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so, so just to kind of preface this, our thought right now is that the protein recommendations that we've been kind of rolling with It's like 1.6 grams per kilo body weight to 3.1 grams per kilo body weight, and this is a you know fairly big range if you think about it. Um, But people on the who should be taking in in protein intakes towards the lower end would probably be those who are gaining weight or maintaining weight, um, who aren't. You're training maybe three days a week, you know, and they're not like serious, serious strength athletes. But if you're gaining weight, you're probably getting enough calories in that's supporting a positive nitrogen balance anyway. You probably don't need, you know, much more protein than that, even if you are a quote unquote serious strength athlete. People who should be taking in protein intakes towards the higher end would be weight loss individuals, individuals who are training a ton, and then those who have other some some other type of demonstrable anabolic resistance um, from either they have an inflammatory condition, they are much, much older, they are, you know, have sarcopenia, some, some instance, something that's compromising their ability to drive a muscle protein synthesis response. But that's the sort of um, background information here. That's our recommendation, right? And so within that, the next question becomes, well, where should you get that protein from? Does it even matter If you're getting it from a plant-based protein or an animal-based protein, if you're getting in that much protein per day. So head to the literature and you kind of start looking at this. And this was one of the first prospective trials that I actually saw uh, about like plant-based protein versus uh, animal-based protein uh, with respect to resistance training. Like they were testing these folks, one RM, their body composition, muscle thickness, all this other stuff. So I was like, cool. And, 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 my assumption going in is, was the null hypothesis, of course, which there would be no difference between the plant-based protein. In this case, it was pea protein, which is what we use in our vegan RX supplement, uh, or whey protein. Um, and in fact, that's what this particular study actually found. And I go into great detail about why that would be the case and, uh, and some other uh, interesting information about that in the research review. But just for the listeners at home here, The main thing is when you're taking in this much protein, you're getting in a lot of essential amino acids. And as a subset of those essential amino acids, you get a lot of branched chain amino acids. And those together, the high concentration of branched chain amino acids and essential amino acids are what really drive the muscle protein synthesis response. So if you're getting a bunch of those in from either plant-based proteins or animal-based proteins you're going to have great muscle protein synthesis responses. And so there's really not a need to sort of, you know, supplement additionally because you're taking in plant protein. I think that's the thought out there in the, you know, the kind of strength conditioning world like, well, if you're vegan or vegetarian, then you need to double the dose or triple the dose of protein because it's not as good of a protein source, but at this level of of protein intake, you're already getting enough. So that's kind of like the the major takeaway.
1: I think. So the, so the question then would be, you know, if, if the question is when does quote unquote protein quality matter? Cause that's the, been the argument historically with plant-based proteins is that they're of a quote unquote lower quality with respect to their amino acid content, for example, or their ability, their potency for stimulating muscle protein synthesis. It seems like, you know, the, the quality would matter a bit more if you are at a relatively lower intake, whether voluntarily or, you know, because there's a medical reason for you to be consuming a lower protein intake, Um, then quality might matter more uh, as, you know, as again, defined by the presence of all the essential amino acids and branched-chain amino acids. And so maybe, do you think that maybe in a lower protein intake diet situation like the animal products, for this sort of these sorts of outcomes might win out but one it's the idea is that once you get over this threshold of total intake that it really doesn't matter that much anymore
0: yeah i think that's one way to think about it although i'd, I'd add a, a caveat that when people talk about protein quality they assume that there's this massive difference yeah. between animal protein and plant-based protein and and i think that bears a little discussion sure. and i I go into this again very in depth in the research review cuz I think it's important for people to understand there are you know a couple different ways you can actually assess protein quality one is called the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score PDCAAS there's also the digestible indispensable amino acid score and just again 10,000 foot view this basically looks at <laughs> if you take in protein by mouth like how much of those, the essential amino acids, are ending up in the bloodstream and how much of that is being absorbed versus ending up in the stool or not necessarily being absorbed in, in that case. Uh, and there's a spectrum of you know, values. Uh, so, for instance, like the scale for the PDCAAS, how they measure this, goes from 0 to 1. 1 is the highest it can be, 0 is the lowest it can be. Whey protein, as you might expect, is 1. Okay, so it's the top, you know, king king of proteins. Uh, but then when you go look at something like pea protein, you're thinking, well, it's plant based. It's from peas, peas. It's got to um, be like you know, a point two or something like that, right? It's point eight nine three. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you can go down the line to like something really kind of what I would call a third third world protein, like wheat gluten. Yeah. Uh, which has a PDC AAS score of 0.25. Mm-hmm. And sure, at that point, you might need more, even a higher protein dose if most of your dietary protein is coming from wheat gluten than if it's coming from whey. Yeah. But but again, the levels of protein that we're actually recommending is is likely gonna take care of that. And and it's unlikely that somebody's getting all of their protein from wheat gluten. And just to kind of further drive this home, yeah. <laughs> canned kidney beans, which no one is considers to be a protein source, right? Like people aren't like, "Yeah, I got some kidney beans." I'm about to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some people do, but not in, not not in, primarily in our audience, I would say. <laughs> sure, the PDCAAS score for that is point seven. Yeah. Like it's still relatively high. And I think most people, their general dietary habits are going to get a lot of different protein sources in. Soy has a really, you know, the PDC AAS for that is 0.99. Like again, the values are are pretty high. They're not as good as whey. And you could make the argument that whey, you know, because this, the PDC AAS, scale is automatically truncated at one and the way is a little it would probably be a little higher that it's you know the difference is a little bit more the the point overall here is that at the protein doses we're recommending i just don't think it matters and then when you look at the practical outcomes here it doesn't look like it matters either as long as you're getting this much protein in so the take-home is protein recommendations should be 1.6 grams per kilo body weight all the way up to 3.1 grams per kilo body weight and even at that highest end i don't know that there's a bunch of good data out there to support uh, uh protein intakes that high but if you were looking for like what's the most amount of protein i could take in with that there's evidence for <laughs> to well, suggest. Studied, i think it's been studied for safety up to four grams per kilo yep. by antonio's group yep correct yeah the uh, from the issn um but and so you could go up you know again as far as evidence of maybe benefit up to 3.1 um, although the new uh, uh, s- some new guidelines suggest that two and a half maybe for training adaptations are the is the highest that we have evidence for but still our, our recommended range is 1.6 to 3.1 and I just really wouldn't worry about where you're getting the protein from if you're going to get in um, that much that much protein Protein. Excellent. If you if you can't yeah if if you, if you can't take in that much protein, either because of a medical condition, from a uh, or financial standpoint, or for just you know your calories are restricted such that eating that much protein really sucks up a lot of your calories that you would otherwise uh, have uh, you save for carbohydrates and or fats. Then I think you could make a case for having a more efficient protein source. And maybe you focus on animal protein sources and you're trying to hang out at that one point six grams per kilo per day. But I don't know, you know, I'm just not I don't think you can make a strong case that like vegans and vegetarians are, you know, severely limiting their gains just based on their protein.
1: No, they might protein be. Choices. Yeah, they might be limiting their gains by under eating on total protein, but that's also the case for people who are consuming animal products. And yep. you know, this is another similar kind of swing we've had where you know you, we talked about this recently. That old article, the seven rules to optimize protein intake. You know, we we're planning to like edit and re release the thing with like here's the things that we would actually recommend worrying about because people take this stuff. Uh, you know, too far in many different directions, whether it be obsessing over, you know, 100% perfect efficiency of quote unquote of their protein intake or this like timing and meal frequency and refractory period stuff. And it's like, you're worrying about your muscle protein synthetic refractory period when, you know, your waist measurement is 42 inches, you're under trained, you're not sleeping and you're not consuming enough protein on a daily basis. And so we've just decided to, you know, Simplify the recommendations overall and prioritize the, the total level of intake above all else, um, from a dietary protein standpoint and worry less about the details for most people. Um, again, unless they're at that very, very upper echelon that needs specific considerations, like the, the lean hard, you know, hard training dieting person or the person who has a bunch of anabolic resistance, Although, with the anabolic resistance piece, I would add that, like, you know, the dietary guidelines for p- uh, patients with cancer, the upper end of where the ESPEN guidelines uh, uh, suggest is 2 grams per kilo. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, And, you know, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, well, if I had a cancer patient and they were able to consume 2, would I expect more benefit by getting them up to 3? A, probably not. And, in fact, I may get a little bit worse outcomes because if they try to force that down, they may be so full that they may actually spontaneously consume fewer calories elsewhere, you know, because yep. one major issue is keeping enough weight or getting them to gain weight or not to lose weight during their, over the course of their treatments and things like that. So there may be a cost uh, to, to ramping it up further in, in specific populations. So, um, yep. yeah, yeah. I think when you look at this, like in a, from a
0: broad picture standpoint, you know, the average American man, takes in about 100 grams of protein a day and the average american woman takes in about 70 grams of protein per day which gets you right to about that one to 1.2 grams per kilo body weight Uh, so i would prefer that most americans increase their protein intake while simultaneously reducing their calorie intake yes (laughs) (laughs) because ultimately irrespective of protein intake calorie intake is going to drive the boat with respect to body weight and then subsequently body composition you know so i think that's important to take into context too you can't just dra- jack up your protein intake or or ratchet down your protein intake not adjust calories and then you know things are going to be hunky-dory rather both of the, those two things seem to be important um and i i think you shouldn't ignore either of them
1: Austin Baraki. I'm an internal medicine physician and coach uh, with Barbell Medicine. So this research review overview, uh, we're kind of going through
0: author by author, talking about each topic that uh, you reviewed for this month's edition. So Austin, what did you actually look at this month?
1: Yeah, so this month uh, there was a paper from uh, just from last year, so not fairly recent by Grigori and his colleagues. Uh, It was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. What they did uh, was a large kind of uh, a fancy type of meta-analysis called a network meta-analysis, basically looking at the effectiveness of medications, various types of medications on the long-term pain control and long-term functional outcomes uh, in patients with knee osteoarthritis. So basically how effective are medicines for dealing with uh, osteoarthritis from a pain and a function standpoint.
0: And just for the uh, listeners at home, do you want to define osteoarthritis just so we're kind of we know what we're talking about
1: uh sure so osteoarthritis is by far the most common type of arthritis in the world and the word arthritis generally you know it's referring to joints and the itis describes inflammation although the degree to which inflammation is significant in osteoarthritis is not as much as in some other conditions but it's what people think of when they're hurt when they hear about things like unfortunately the idea of wear and tear or kind of age related changes, degenerative, degenerative changes in the joints, all these kind of common, very common, oftentimes age related, but often, but also can be associated with things like traumatic injuries and surgeries, uh, joint pain that kind of develops. It's very, tends to be chronic and activity related joint pain that people tend to experience over time.
0: And then how would you actually go about Diagnosing someone with uh, osteoarthritis.
1: Yeah, so. I would consider it to be a, a clinical diagnosis, meaning that there's, you know, there's there's some things that require some medical conditions that require maybe like a single definitive blood test to diagnose or something like that, or a single definitive uh, x-ray or, or CT scan finding. I think that's that uh, osteoarthritis is more of a clinical diagnosis where you can have some supporting evidence from some of these things, um, such as imaging, but at the same time, we know that x-ray findings of osteoarthritis or quote-unquote degenerative changes, which we prefer to describe as just age-related changes that happen to just about everybody, can be very common in people who don't have symptoms. And if people don't have symptoms, we don't tend to worry about it very much. So it's kind of a clinical uh, syndrome where somebody might present with some kind of uh, uh, generally uh, activity-related joint pain that um, can become quite disabling over time, uh, but uh, basically uh, also would involve ruling out other causes or conditions like true inflammatory uh, causes of arthritis or tendon related issues or kind of other other common other causes of joint pain that may require a unique approach to treatment
0: yeah the way i like to think about this or just categorizing it in my in my brain uh, is that the typical history is somebody who has joint pain that gets worse with use um, is typically an older individual and then it can be associated with other symptoms like quote unquote Stiffness or a reduction in in range of motion, but usually that doesn't last for that long. Meaning it's transient, you know. So like I think the class there's like a time limit. It's usually less than like thirty or forty five minutes or something like that. Otherwise, you start thinking about other causes sure. of joint joint pain, which does do need to be ruled out prior to being like, okay, this is the clinical diagnosis of osteoarthritis. Let's manage it. Uh, as such.
1: So pain, stiffness, you know, occasional mild swelling can all be present most commonly in the knees, but it can really happen in the hips, the hands, um, you know, the, the, the feet all over the shoulder, really any joint can be affected by this.
0: Yeah. But if you had a younger person, somebody like in their twenties who came in with, you know, knee pain that got worse with use (laughs) and, you know, maybe stayed, uh, like even after they discontinued activity, stayed like pretty painful and, and and stiff or whatever. You might be thinking about something else. And you, yeah, it,
1: the differential diagnosis definitely changes, or your suspicion for those kind of things can definitely change just by the demographic uh, that's that's showing up and the and the and the history that you get from the individual.
0: That pretest probability though.
1: That's right.
0: uh, <laughs> okay, so this month you were looking at kind of pharmaceutical interventions for the management of. Osteoarthritis-related pain. What's like like a broad strokes kind of overview? What was your general takeaway from the this month's review?
1: Uh, My general takeaway is that these sorts of pharmacologic interventions are much less effective for the for the long term management of pain and uh, improvements in physical function. Uh, It given basically when when put in the context of how much they're emphasized by clinicians. Um, the takeaway from you was really that, you know, in, in clinical practice, our attention is very much directed in the wrong place um, when we tend to gravitate, uh, uh, physicians in particular tend to gravitate a lot towards medications for the management of symptoms and, and uh, uh, with, with individuals with uh, osteoarthritis-related knee pain. And so, you know, really, they, our, our attention and counseling and education and focus i think should be much 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 more strongly directed at um you know uh, education interventions uh, exercise interventions self uh, getting getting people into like self management uh type programs and and uh, things like that uh, strength training physical activity are much more potent interventions for the long-term management of symptoms and improvements in function in individuals with knee pain compared to medications. Um, but again, our attention is just way too focused on, you know, oh, you have knee pain, you should be taking some kind of medication to manage that, or I can do this injection to manage that. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, resources, both, you know, the fund of knowledge and, and and tools that the actual clinician may have available to them sure. prior, you know, during the visit, and then also just resources as far as time in the clinic. I think the average primary care visit is something like fifteen or, or sixteen minutes long, you know. And so you have a person who comes in, a new patient to you, or somebody you haven't seen in a while, and they say, "Yeah, I've got this pain that you, you, smells like osteoarthritis to you." Not that there's a <laughs> distinct smell like a pseudomonas or C C-dip <laughs> smell. Right, right. But, but what I mean is that your, your clinical impression is that it's, um, osteoarthritis. And so, yeah, it would be nice to have, do this educational, you know, start the, the process of educating and, and have resources to refer people to in order to continue that education and intervention, like physical activity interventions. But what it most likely kind of shakes out as is, is, yeah, let's start you on this medication. It'll go away, which, you know, sometimes it does sometimes sometimes it doesn't it sounds like what you're saying is we focus well when i say we i mean just clinicians or physicians in general yeah focus on the medical management with a pharmac- with a medication more than activity modification or or something like that
1: yeah i mean and and the, the the way i looked at this article the way i introduced it was kind of in the context of what clinical practice guidelines would suggest for this thing. And really, when you look at clinical practice guidelines from the, you know, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons or AAFP and other kind of primary care organizations, they really put strong first-line recommendations for things like the self-management programs, the exercise, including strength training, engaging in physical activity consistent with the, the national guidelines. But when you actually look at real-world practice, how it ends up looking, uh, you know, rel- much, uh, much smaller proportion, you know, go into any degree of depth counseling, that kind of stuff, and to focus much more on the use of medications, which, you know, based on some of these data really aren't all that effective. And so if you have a limited amount of time, uh, you know, we should be using our time for things that have demonstrated efficacy rather than providing a bunch of interventions that don't have quite as much long-term efficacy, if any, at all. Um, But on top of that, you know, it's the way we explain, because, you know, if you're going to diagnose somebody with osteoarthritis in the clinic, you're typically going to explain it to them in some fashion. And the narratives of course, that go along with this can help or harm the individual from the standpoint of how likely they are to engage in exercise and activity. And really that reflects what the clinician's beliefs are. So if the, if the doctor thinks that, you know, resistance training or, or exercise is unlikely to benefit the patient or may cause harm to the benefit uh, to the patient, then they're going to be less likely, less likely to deliver that sort of a narrative. They're going to describe it in terms of wear and tear and things like that. And if you give a patient a narrative that, you know, suggests that using the joint is going to precipitate worse, you know, quote unquote damage and make things worse then if, even if you deliver the narrative and then you tell them that they should exercise, that seems to be conflicting advice. And we have lots of evidence that, you know, when you give, uh, a narrative, and then you give advice that conflicts with it, patients don't end up buying into the treatment plan. We have evidence on that at the shoulder, um, for sure, with respect to like shoulder impingement syndromes. If you tell them it's, uh, it's uh, you know, ground down and impinging, but with an osteophyte, and then you tell them to go do exercise for rehab, they're like, how is that going to fix this? I'm not going to buy into that. And then they get worse outcomes. So the narratives that we use to explain it can then prime people to buy into our recommendations, if they're at involved education, exercise, self-management, or to reject them and just say, you know, oh, I definitely need an injection to deal with this, um, you know, this, this uh, condition of my joint. And I'm afraid that it's going to wear away more and more. And I'm going to inevitably end up needing to get surgery for this thing.
0: Right. So if you make the, the association, like, you know, we're just like a car break <laughs> yeah. down over yeah. time, you need to, you know, change the oil in the joint yeah, exactly. and all these sort of things, then yet there's going to be, uh, I guess more weight uh, uh, ascribed to something like a joint injection or, or medication, and then you might actually be start fearing or avoiding
1: activity because you're like, "Well, I'm just adding to the wear and tear here." Yeah, and so so While also it, priming kind of dependency on the injections. You know what I mean? If people start sure. to view the need, you know, my car needs oil every however many thousand of miles. My knee needs a you know hyaluronic acid injection every <laughs> every six months or something. When really, there's no clear evidence to show that it actually uh, uh, has any benefit over, you know, beyond placebo in some of these interventions.
0: Yeah. I, I read a case report. I'll, I'll have to send this to you. It's funny, not funny, like funny in a tragic sort of way. Uh, this patient was actually, it, it's similar to like a, a, um, a mileage, you know, recorder on a car, you know, yeah. which just tells yeah. you how many miles you have on it. Yeah. Basically they would track and record their steps every day. And then once they got to uh, X amount of steps. I think this was in the, like uh, a million steps or something like that. Uh, I, the exact number is eluding me at this, at this point, but it, they would have said that that's what I need a joint injection. I, I know based on my records that I have, you know, I go through this many steps, I need to get my oil changed. And I was like, wow, can you imagine that, that visit that doctor's visit <laughs> the patient yeah. comes out with a, a spreadsheet and they're like look man i've been tracking all the stuff and i know that uh i'm coming up on my million step mark and uh, i'm gonna need that uh, and need that injection doc.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we condition patients to this stuff all the time. I We've seen it in the inpatient setting. I see it in the hospital where, say, somebody's scheduled to get a pain medicine like every eight hours. I've had patients, or, or even more frequently, and they set their alarm clock on their phone so they can get their next you know, opioid dose at the scheduled time or something like that. So uh. the, thing I, the, 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 the other thing I want to point out about this study is that it was specifically looking at uh, long-term outcomes. So people are going to say, oh, you know, definitely when I have arthritis and I take you know, an NSAID, it makes my joint feel better. I've gotten an injection. It made my joint feel better. Even clinicians might say, you know, I've seen, I've seen this stuff, make patients feel better. And, and some of the guidelines even leave room for, you know, use of some of these medications. Most often discussing NSAIDs, um, uh, for, uh, for pain management. Interestingly, they also talk about tramadol, which is not a drug i ever <laughs> prescribed to anyone for anything, but anyway, as an <laughs> aside, um, but this trial again was focused on long-term. So there's 47 trials over 22,000 patients, and they looked at 33 different interventions. But the, one of the inclusion criteria for the study was that, uh, the interventions had to have been studied over 12 months, and this included pain measures pre and post, uh, at least 12-month duration, uh, physical function outcomes using like the WOMAC score, which is a standardized uh, standardized uh, kind of assessment tool for osteoarthritis for physical function and some other subscales. They also looked at joint space narrowing on x-ray imaging, but I don't really care too much about that. So I didn't really get it. I didn't really you know get too excited about that. But pain and function obviously matter much more. So um, this is, again, looking at long-term kind of outcomes and you know, a lot of the evidence for the use of some of these medications or the use of some of these injections that people will hold up uh, often more often comes from uh, much more short term studies. And obviously, we care less about that compared to, you know, longer term outcomes of how people are doing over time, because the effects of osteoarthritis from a pain and function standpoint can have cascading and compounding effects on multiple other conditions. So like, you know, if you have pain and functional disability that is not addressed, they just tell you to take some Tylenol or some, uh, uh, some NSAID uh, like, you know, Aleve or naproxen or uh, ibuprofen or something. And you just withdraw from physical activity out of fear of damaging your joints that's something that can, that's very commonly ends up being associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes because people do less exercise and they get in worse shape and they're more likely to have heart attacks and weight gain and metabolic syndrome, diabetes, things like that. Because again, uh, just the fear of activity precipitates all this harm in other organ systems. And so that's another reason why, again, like, yeah, I totally recognize that you know, outpatient uh, primary care encounters are very limited in and uh, in how much time you have. But I think that people, as usual, as we say all the time, they fail to recognize how important their how words can be here and how much of like a rippling effect they can have on the patient's uh, view of themselves, view of their joints, confidence in their bodies, willingness to engage in activity, uh, and and how that can you know help promote. Uh, healthier lifestyle or it can result in their, you know, premature death from some sort of medical complication like a, like a heart attack or a stroke or something that's a potentially preventable complication. All right. That
0: and uh, Austin goes into much more detail this month's research review. So if you're not a member or subscriber to our research review, we recommend that you check that out. If you're on the fence, you're like, I don't know what this research review is about. The first issue, uh, which is January of this year, is available for free. It's in the show notes below uh austin let's give the people a handful of take-home uh points here um it sounds like the very first part you know based on what we've talked about before and kind of uh our discussion here is make sure that you have an accurate diagnosis for what you're actually managing
1: (laughs) yeah yeah if we're gonna take this sort of approach but we actually have a patient who has like you know raging rheumatoid arthritis or something like that then we're gonna have to you know Uh, a just course for sure so need definitely it is a clinical diagnosis but we should definitely be ruling out uh, other conditions that would merit their own special treatment
0: yep uh Uh, second take home let's i'll just prompt you here with the you know because people do come in with diagnosis all the diagnoses all the time of osteoarthritis and they say, yeah, you know, I can't squat or I can't do this because, or I'm afraid to do this uh, particular movement because I have osteoarthritis. What say you doc?
1: Yeah, there's, there's very, very few physical activities that I tell people they can't do if they have osteoarthritis. Uh, I would would venture to say there's none, but the, the idea is that the dose is what matters. And so a lot of times people will say, you know, I have osteoarthritis and every time I go to try to squat, you know, 400 pounds, it hurts, not that this happens commonly in practice, but among the lifters that we deal with. And so we would say it's not the squat that's doing it, it's the dose of stimulus. And, and so maybe that means that you start you know, with a much lower dose of stimulus, either in the gym, or you start out with a lower dose of the stimulus with your walking or whatever other type of exercise program that you're beginning, you know, that teaching people what the, you know, the, the, uh, kind of the meaning of pain, the, the whole concept of hurt, not equaling harm, that they're not causing actively causing more damage to their joints if they experience a symptom fluctuation and to monitor how their symptoms do in response to a given dose of activity. And you can learn to kind of auto regulate, so to speak, so that you can maintain a, a tolerable level of activity and aim to progress that gradually over time based on tolerance, rather than just uh, withdrawing or or deeming yourself disabled from a particular type of activity altogether.
0: Sure. I like that. And then the last one, I think, you know, because again, we do get questions all the time. If someone's like, you know, well, yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, I've been diagnosed with osteoarthritis. I'm, uh, you know, very active. I'm doing one of your templates, but then sometimes I have, you know, knee pain, we'll say,
1: and I take ibuprofen. Is that ruining my gains? Yeah, so I don't think that it's ruining your gains. Uh, I I think that the uh, the short term use of these of some of these things like a, like an NSAID um, and in this study they actually found a the only the only uh, finding that had a significant effect in this particular paper was glucosamine. It was a small to moderate effect of glucosamine sulfate over the long term for pain and physical function uh, that I found a bit surprising but at the same time you know i'm getting a sing- like a single digit benefit out of this compared to potential double digit benefits from pain and function with exercise and education and self management skills so i'm still not shifting my emphasis all the way to that but if people want to use one of those things for very short term symptom management um you know i'm not gonna say you should never under any circumstance take them but i want to make sure that the emphasis is being put in the right place that their interpretation of the symptoms is is uh, not uh, catastrophic or inaccurate they know how to self-manage and maintain physical activity and not kind of withdraw and become disabled from it uh, that that would probably be my my uh, emphasis there
0: yeah i think when we actually did our initial podcast on osteoarthritis we did a little lit review on uh nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and their effects on training outcomes and i think you know the overall take home there was that it, you're not likely to see any significant you know decrease in training adaptation by taking them in fact the opposite relationship tends to be true if taking the medication actually increases your ability to train when you otherwise wouldn't, uh, yeah. secondary to, to acute sort of pain symptoms. Although we wouldn't recommend taking these things like prophylactically, like, Oh, I'm about to have a squat workout.
1: Yeah. I've had knee pain in the past. Exactly. Ibuprofen. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody said that they needed to take it to be able to train, my question would be why. And then, you know, it would make me want to reassess their programming probably because it might be that the dose of stimulus that they're applying to themselves is not appropriate at that time. That's and they may be able to get them to tolerate a dose of training and work it up to where they want to be without the need for such medications because there can be conditioning effects. There can be other negative health effects, uh, from taking NSAIDs, uh, uh, chronically. And, you know, we see this a lot with lifters who, you know, or, or even in some of the military folks that I treat, cause they're all taught this idea of vitamin I for ibuprofen is a stupid phrase, but, uh, um, take, taking it just to be able to get through certain types of physical activity, um, you know, rather than managing the dose of load is probably the most important thing. And then I would add that for uh, individuals who have tendonitis, quote unquote, or tendinopathy, uh, NSAIDs don't really work for these things. So we, we have rehabbed many, many, many individuals who developed a tendinopathy of some sort, and they were told by somebody or a coach to just do a high dose ibuprofen for a, you know, a week or two or sometimes longer. I really hope not, but sometimes that happens and, uh, that doesn't work. So, um, for, for tendinopathy type symptoms, we don't recommend them for these, for, for osteoarthritis flares, for example, if it was going to be a super short term thing, then, okay but uh you know i wouldn't expect long-term benefits and there are uh, uh, to re-emphasize there are more important places to be focusing our emphasis with the management of symptoms and improving physical function with osteoarthritis
0: very good well dr Brocky thank you for joining us here on this initial research review podcast yeah thanks man
2: Um, I'm Derek Miles. I'm a physical therapist at Sanford Children's, the advanced clinical specialist. I am part of the pain and rehab team at Barbell Medicine.
0: So for this month's uh, research review, tell us your topic and uh, what you looked at this month.
2: So this month, I did a scoping review of treatment of hamstring muscular injuries. So the common vernacular being you pulled your hamstring or strained your hamstring. And there's a lot of evidence on the way that we do treat that or should handle it, as well as how it should return or an athlete should focus on returning to sport and building capacity back up.
0: So, so this is more of a uh, kind of a review of not only what like these sort of injuries are, but then also how to how to treat them. Is that, is that right?
2: Yep. So part of it is even the, the definition of what constitutes a strain. A, a lot of the research would advocate we should just call it a muscular injury because strain's more the mechanism than the injury itself. And this piece focuses on what that is and then how we address that and how an athlete can train through an injury as well as around according to the precautions that need to be followed.
0: Now, do you get into the difference between a strain and a sprain at all? Like, do you just for, because it's a common question we get all the time, and so I'm just curious if you if you went into that at all?
2: Um, I did not, but you know, a strain typically, you know, once again, not the best vernacular for it, is more muscular in origin, whereas a sprain tends to be more ligamentous.
0: Yep, yeah, right, right, particularly around a, a joint. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's just, but the the funny thing is, trying to define all these things is uh, <laughs> it's half the battle. When I was you run uh, into the weeds I, really fast, you really do, and then you you know the, it, it also changes how you uh, can discuss things like injury rates or prevalence or incidents, depending on which uh, statistical parameter you're looking at. So, in any event, we're not going to try to bore the uh, the listeners at home. You should definitely read the full article, but uh, give us your sort of uh, ten thousand foot view of this article kind of give people a synopsis
2: well essentially whenever you have a muscular injury almost always you have some type of residual strength deficit that needs to be addressed and we're not aiming for perfect symmetry but the, the closer we can get to building capacity back up the better off and it seems as though most muscle injuries really benefit from both eccentric loading and loading it in range which is where the nordic hamstring curl curls really kind of come to the forefront and the 10,000 foot view is if you have pulled a hamstring or have a hamstring muscular injury to use the proper vernacular you should be doing nordic hamstring curls.
0: Yeah, and so nordic hamstring curl, we have a video on this. I'll uh, link that in the in the show notes and everything about, you know, what it looks like and there's a couple different ways you can do that. This is something that's been around I mean, at least that I've been aware of it for about the last ten years or so. It's and it's kind of gained popularity, particularly in athletic populations. Um, Can you speak to the maybe the proposed function of like or mechanism of how this actually would reduce the risk of a hamstring injury in uh, athletic populations?
2: Well, some of it is related to getting the capacity back for strength, but it's interesting because we talk about specificity of training, and most people want to do movements that mimic how you're going to function, whether it be squatting or sprinting. And the Nordic has such good evidence that like has nothing in specificity principle. There's nothing in sports where we lock our feet down and slowly fall forward. Um, but the overall thought is that you get some structural changes in the muscle where you get increased fascicle length and that increased lengthening tends to change where your peak torque is. So it lets you tolerate higher forces at end range.
0: Yeah, the way I understand it is that Particularly in ground-based sports where there's running involved or, or otherwise rapid change in length of the muscle itself, um, something like the Nordic hamstring curl really does tend to focus on the eccentric component, the muscle lengthening component <laughs> of those activities. And then, because you're really lengthening the muscle under tension, you get this uh, the, the the resultant adaptation to the muscle is not only to increase eccentric strength, but also to increase the length of each sarcomere. Uh, or sorry, not the length of each sarcomere. You actually add sarcomeres in series yep. uh, through a process yeah, of sarcomere facile. genesis. Yeah. Yep. So so when people are like, "Wait, are these guys saying that the muscle actually gets a little longer?" It's like, well, the actual you know origin and insertion don't change position, right? So the, the yeah. muscle doesn't yeah. necessarily get long get longer, but you're adding sarcomeres in series, and so the sort of re- uh, 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 resistance to I don't know that end range of motion is decreased because you have less sort of mechanical uh, limitation there, uh, and so I, I want to be clear that we're not saying that the muscle actually gets "quote unquote" longer, but but adding sarcomeres in series tends to be beneficial for these high velocity movements, and we can train that via these, you know, sort of uh, eccentric uh, movements. And uh, anecdotally, for the listeners at home. i I do nordic hamstring curls on both my days two and days four uh for training which typically are a little more lower body dominant for me and so one of them i'll do just body weight on the floor um and i'll just do the slow you know six to ten second eccentric and then the other the second day i'll do it on a glute ham raise and i'll actually do it loaded because i think i have more mechanical advantage there so it just allows me to load it a little a little bit more um When you're looking into these hamstring sort of injuries, we'll say structural injuries, uh, besides the Nordic hamstring curl as being like part of the rehab process, getting getting back to activity, anything else that you you found that uh, you would routinely use?
2: Well, a lot of the studies use an isokinetic dynamometer, which, let's face it, isn't really seen in most gyms. But what
0: is what is an isokinetic dynamometer? (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's a, a biodex. So isokinetic means same speed. So essentially it's a machine that looks like a the extension and hamstring curl machine that no matter how hard you kick or pull against it, it's going to go at the same speed. And it lets us check the torque that you can generate. And that is kind of the gold standard that we use for a lot of return to sport criteria, but they're typically only really found at research institutions. Um, but by proxy, some of the, other papers have ended up using things like a prone hamstring curl and getting in that same position to where you can really focus on that eccentric at end range.
0: Yeah, the way I think about it, because I've only seen it once in an exercise science lab uh, when I was doing my master's, and I was like, "What the heck is that?" And then they they put you on it, and the thing moves at the same speed, and you're basically just contracting against it the whole time. It's just controlling your your contraction velocity. Uh, and obviously the the range of motion is already set too. So, but I've only seen it once. You could do this in the gym theoretically with a the hamstring curl, uh, a line hamstring curl, if mm-hmm. you were able to keep the tempo consistent throughout the at the set. Are are you recommending people do something like that if they have, are suffering one of these injuries?
2: Yes, um, and most of it comes down to the fact of we do know that there is some of these deficits afterwards, and I think this is one of those times where the test can become the exercise as well because if you get on a prone hamstring curl, you can actually use RPE for a subjective report of your deficit side to side, and it gives you a metric with which to work to get back into everything.
0: So you would have people do this unilaterally, so using one leg at a time? Oh, yes, yes okay okay just like the injured side quote unquote versus the the side that's quote that's normal and you would see at the same load i mean just let's just use a practical example all right so let's say i was out there running now we know that this isn't true but let's just theoretically say (laughs) And, and i was like uh hey i uh think i pulled a hamstring <laughs> and you're like well don't use stupid don't use the wrong vernacular feigenbaum but uh <laughs> you seem to have a maybe a, a structural injury uh so you would have me get on a lion hamstring curl if i didn't have a biodex and you'd mm-hmm. have me do it one leg what load are we using here and is it a full range of motion or anything else special about this
2: well it really is like so that's not likely where we would start depending on the severity of the injury you know for Acute where you're not going to tolerate it, we're obviously not going to go straight to that exercise. But once you can tolerate it, I think looking for three sets of eight at a 303 tempo, just nice and slow unilateral side to side gives you some litmus on where to go. And if you set that at RPE8, and let's say for the sake of argument, one foot or one leg is 100 pounds, the other leg is 80 pounds. Well, now you know your limb symmetry index and you're 80% of where you need to be. So and, and, and is there,
0: is there a, is there a, I guess, so you, earlier you said symmetry and I ignored it because I was like, yeah. he didn't, he didn't mean symmetry, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but it seems, it seems like that's, that's actually something you're looking at. Is there a, a symmetry mm-hmm. level that you would say you're okay to return to normal activity outside of symptoms that they're experiencing in an exercise or activity or, uh, uh, or something more objective like that?
2: Well, some of it comes down to you know what toys you have to play with and what sports. I think for a barbell athlete, it's a little bit different than say a high speed like soccer player or sprinter, um, because the soccer player and sprinter you would want some metric, and there's nothing really clear in the literature. But if we look at like. Some of the things we know off of ACLs and the research related to that, like it seems like 90% is really where you want to be to be in the safe zone side to side. But even with the muscle injuries, it's interesting because the thing that pops up and this gets into the isokinetic dynamometer, it's not so much uh, concentric strength or isometric strength. It's just the eccentric side of things. And that's the part that really has the deficit out of it, which is why I think the emphasis really needs to be on that tempo through the eccentric portion of it. And, you know, you could do a single leg RDL or like even for the rehab side of things like a stiff, like a deadlift or RDL to really like just overemphasize that in range. And I, I think all of those will be very viable options. Uh, okay.
0: So, and, and, I guess the the next question I would have is if somebody doesn't have access to even a prone line leg curl, let's say they work out in a CrossFit gym, is mm-hmm. there something that I guess the testing would be difficult? I mean, you could do theoretically a single leg barbell or dumbbell or kettlebell, RDL. Uh, would mm-hmm. you feel comfortable doing that on a tempo to try to assess this this uh, limb asymmetry?
2: Yeah, I think having some type of proxy in the research for the soccer community, they actually use a single leg bridge for maximum reps and i think for an endurance or like a speed type athlete that's a fine proxy but for a barbell athlete probably not quite as good just because the maximum strength difference between a single leg bridge and and like wherever you're going to be squatting is likely so fast that you're not you're going to not pick up subtle differences
0: got it uh and so would the next question would be uh would you ever do this i guess prospectively so effectively, you, you, let's say you had a new client who came uh, to you and they were, uh, we'll just say that they were a barbell sport athlete. Would you like test this at any point if they had no other complaints?
2: Um, If they had no other complaints, I likely wouldn't. But if there was some type of surgical history, like we'll get uh, people in the pain and rehab group who are, you know, a year status post ACL reconstruction or or some type of surgery. And almost then I always want to check something like this early on, just because the literature does say that this is an instance where the closer you can get to symmetrical side to side, the less likely you are to have issues.
0: There you go. Yeah, I think this is uh, fascinating stuff, especially um, people who have maybe either either recurrent hamstring issues or a current hamstring issue. Um, This is something that would have been very useful to myself and Baraki uh, some years ago when we were both dealing with the hamstring issue that wouldn't quite go away. Uh, In any event, this is going to be fleshed out in much more detail in this month's research review. You guys should subscribe. Derek, for just a take-home, if you had to give people like a sort of practical implementation, their barbell sport or or barbell enthusiast, uh, and they wanted to plug in some of this stuff at the end of their workouts, what would you have them do as far as exercise selection, frequency, and just sort of a, a rep scheme?
2: Well, if you look at the Nordic side of it, typically it starts off with twice a week for three sets of six. And for barbell athletes, we tend to have a propensity to be a little bit more top heavy. So just as an exercise, I would be comfortable saying this is a little bit more difficult for us just because of the lever arm of mass that we tend to carry. But if you're doing three sets of six with the emphasis on the eccentric twice a week and you do that for a little while, I think you're safe dropping down to once a week. And I tend to just throw it in at the end of my day three, because that tends to be most of my supplemental lifts anyway. And I tend to have some extra gas just to go over and get three sets of six Nordics.
3: I am Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor out of Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm a pain and rehab clinician uh, remotely with Barbell Medicine. So this podcast is a little bit different.
0: We're going to be talking a lot about the uh, topics from the Barbell Medicine Research Review for September. So first off, since if you guys don't know about this research review, we've been doing this now for, it seems like a while. I don't know. When did we start? Was it January? Yeah, I think we're on the the ninth issue this upcoming month. Yeah. So we've been doing this for a while now. Each, uh, issue gets better than the last one. I actually think the last two or three issues, my submissions have been about 30 pages each. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <I'm> trying- <laughs> yeah. It's
3: like half of the volume.
0: <laughs> well, that's what happens when you're doing like these systematic review type things. Yeah. Um, so in any, in any event, if you're curious about the research review, we have a, the, the January issue is free. I'll link, uh, I'll link that in the show notes below. And what we'll try to do is give you guys a synopsis of this month's issue with some take-homes. So, what did you look at this month, Michael?
3: I looked at a randomized uh, trial on hip arthroscopy for femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. All right. So, um, just for, for the listeners at home,
0: not for me because, you know, I, well, I know this stuff. <laughs> I'm just right, kidding. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. What uh, what is an arthroscopy and what is femoral acetabular impingement syndrome?
3: Yeah, so the the first like probably 8 to 10 pages, I pulled a Feigenbaum this month. and I think mine's like just at 20 pages. Um, the first like half of it just goes over what is femoral acetabular impingement syndrome and kind of where this narrative came from. In essence, um, it, it's morph- morphology alteration, so like hip joint, changes than what we consider to be textbook norm for the head of the femur articulating with the acetabulum. So think like ball and socket here. And so one type can have um, malformation to the head of the femur and the other could be to the acetabulum, so the socket. And so we call this femoral acetabular impingement uh, and we call it syndrome on the end because it's kind of a a different amount of symptoms can present uh, from the patient that kind of leads you down this road and then I've got to go through a consensus panel but that's called the Warwick Consensus Panel where they basically bring a bunch of experts together and say, you know, what is the language we should be using for this? How should we be diagnosing it? How should we be treating this? And it turns out, um, although we've had this narrative for quite some time, it became really popular in the early 2000s, the treatments that have been been utilized for it uh, haven't really been put under the microscope for uh, efficacy at all. And so this month I looked at an effectiveness trial between hip arthroscopy, which this surgery has been around since 1936, and I talk about this. And at that time, it was an open surgery, so that you know they make a pretty large surgical incision and go in and alter joint morphology that way. Arthroscopy is uh, more of like a keyhole incision; it's really small, so it's way uh, considered less invasive, so to speak. And so that's been around since the early 2000s. And they looked at how does that surgery compare to doing conservative management? Uh, conservative being like the rehabilitative process. And so, um, this is called the UK Fashion Trial, and I took a look at, because um, there's a lot of issues with this study, and we briefly mentioned it on our last podcast for this topic. And so, this dives a lot more into some of the problems and flaws of this study and kind of how to pay attention as a reader to looking at data a little more um just being a little more scrutinizing of it and paying attention to it. And then looking at the author's interpretation of that data and how things really can get lost in translation and the wrong message provided to the audience. So if you read kind of the authors on this paper, if you look at their interpretation of the data and you just walked away from that, like, let's say you just read the conclusions, you would think that hip arthroscopy has tons of support, and this is something that's uh, does better than conservative treatment. And that's what we should be doing with all our patients that present with this. But when you look at the data, data a lot more closely, you see that it wasn't a well-conducted study. It lacked things like a true control arm or a watch and wait arm. It lacked sham arthroscopy, which still hasn't occurred yet to assess, You know, is this better than placebo-like contextual effects or natural history or regression to the mean? And then the like positive outcome was just barely better than minimal clinical important difference. And when we look at stuff like that, we have to ask the question of risk versus benefits. So do the risks of the surgical procedure and the cost of the surgical procedure matter as it relates to this very small positive benefit that was found? And then looking at that comparatively to the conservative arm, which also both of them equally, like both of them improved, the surgery was just very barely over conservative intervention. And then when I looked more closely at the conservative, it was quite laughable what they considered like rehabilitative treatment.
0: Yeah, it's, it's this whole issue of FAI, so femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, and then surgical management of it, it it's fascinating because it, it seems like the pendulum has swung or is swinging towards conservative management, again, based on the data in, in, in many circles that are up to date with the, the literature. Whereas, you know, five, 10 years ago, it, you know, surgery was, was de rigueur, you know, it was in <laughs> vogue. Uh, so it, it just really interesting. And so this, I, I really liked that you were, you guys have addressed this on the pain and rehab podcast, which we'll link that, uh, episode about hip, uh, issues in the description below. And then also that you decided to tackle it this month for the research review. Uh, one interesting thing I'd like to get your take on, <laughs> and, and, and this is just, uh, you know when you're not an expert in something, and uh, I would f- freely admit that I am not an expert in this. I only know enough to be dangerous and enough that's meaningful to myself because I had this hip pain uh, when I for probably this is probably 2016, and so I just kind of went into the uh, into the weeds and tried to dig up as much stuff as I could about it, so to become informed. But I, I would not, by no means call myself an expert in this particular issue. But I do know, I do know that um, when you you look at the literature as far as incidents of fai as it's diagnosed via, uh, via imaging and you look at asymptomatic individuals so people with no symptoms no no you know dysfunction pain etc you see uh, an ungodly amount of people with sort of (laughs) classical quote-unquote FAI findings on imaging. Something like 40% 40 of people have what's called a cam deformity, or close to 70% have the pincher deformity. And and even when you look at like labral tears, it's like 70%. And these are all asymptomatic individuals. And then athletes can have, you know, double or higher the rate of, you know, non-athletic populations. So, This is a pretty common, like the structural sort of findings are super, super common. And I think, again, 5, 10 years ago, if you had hip pain, right, and then you just, and you went to your doctor's office and they happened to refer you for imaging, they're likely, and you're an athlete, you're likely to find one of these deformities or issues on imaging if you look hard enough. And at the time, surgery was recommended. Like, well, you got to fix the deformity. That's the thing, and uh, and again, now I think the literature and the the evidence to to when you look at these things critically is 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 swinging. Is that your is that your kind of take on, on this as well? Like the, the pendulum swinging towards maybe be more conservative in management.
3: It's interesting. Um, th- like this whole thing got started for surgical intervention um, with a guy named. It was an article by Smith Peterson that was treating uh, patellio acetabuli, which if you're not familiar with that, it's basically when your femoral head starts. Butting up against acetabulum so much they can actually push into the pelvic bowl. And so, this is like where it originated to kind of go in and correct morphological changes. And then it got extrapolated over to FAI syndrome and to what you were saying. uh, Frank et al. would be the last systematic review on this. And they found, you know, a fairly high prevalence rate, not only in just general population, but even higher in athletes, completely Mm -hmm. asymptomatic. And so, If you're familiar with our content at all, um, like the audience on what we did with the shoulder as far as subacromial impingement syndrome goes, you're basically seeing the same thing happen in the hip, where it's like, okay, well, maybe we do have these joint alterations, but how much do they actually matter in the grand scheme of outcomes, like helping the patient reduce symptoms and get back to doing the things they want to do in life? And even in 2016, when the uh, Warwick consensus uh, panel released their statement, they were like, we really don't have any high quality data on anything as it relates to how to treat this. Um, so it's a big unknown. I mean, I'm happy they're starting to do like studies like this and trying to see, but we're still kind of... Ahead of ourselves, like we haven't even done an efficacy study for hip arthroscopy, meaning like how does this compare to just watch and wait? We're already jumping to effectiveness trials, but yeah, I think if we were to take a step back and take a much broader look at this from not only biology but also psychology and sociology of the individual, with the knowledge that you can find a pretty high base rate of this finding, especially in athletes, maybe we should look at other ways than becoming super invasive and, and having extra cost and risks of things, and see how do we conservatively manage this. But I'm full willing to admit that what i usually see as conservative manager either clinically or in the research realm probably isn't the highest fidelity
0: sure sure yeah so there's a lot of uh different processes and selection that's already gone on by the time that <laughs> we see these these folks um yeah. so it being that uh you know it's interesting i just Gave that uh, presentation at uh, the European Powerlifting Conference on injury risk and risk reduction in powerlifting. And part of my review and preparation process for that was to actually characterize injury risk and injury rates in powerlifting. And part of that was, you know, what are the most commonly affected areas, right? And so it's interesting that the hip, uh, the lumbopelvic area, the low back, and then um, the shoulder were the three most commonly injured areas in powerlifting, uh, in weightlifting and in CrossFit. So like across these, you know, fairly hetero genius sports, although they're all, yeah. they all involve lifting weights, right? Uh, let's just say for the practical take home here, and then we'll, we'll wrap this guy up. You got somebody who comes in with hip pain. Let's say it's anterior hip pain and, uh, they notice it when they're squatting or they're trying to run. Let's just say theoretically they, they, they yeah. run. <laughs> <laughs> Not me, but uh, you. <laughs> just theoretic- theoretically, what's your sort of, you know, initial step in management to try to get this person out of the pain cave and, uh, and yeah. still allow them to be active? What, what do you do with this person?
3: Yeah, that's one of my biggest issues with this diagnosis is like they qualify diagnosis as you have to do imaging. And that doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to me. Like why we see what's happening in low back areas we're trying to do imaging out of the gate, and we have guidelines that are basically like, look, unless it's these 1% to 4% of cases, don't shoot imaging on acute onset low back pain. And I think that's probably a similar line we should take. So, if someone presented with onset of anterior hip pain, that's that's movement-based, position-based, and activity-related, then we're going to have a conversation about kind of their experience with pain, the meaning they've assigned to it, and then what are the things they want to be able to do. And if it's not a trauma-based case where I'm worried about trying to rule something out, then it's how do we start you from a Entry level point of activity to get you to do the things you want to be able to do with tolerable symptoms and then build from there. So maybe we try different squat variations or we try single leg work or we try some type of tolerable loading to build from and try that initially, you know, and see how does that go for like a minimal threshold of six weeks, just like what we're doing with acute onset low back pain. And then if like things are worsening and not improving, then worry yourselves with trying to like pinpoint this very specific biological issue that may have been there anyways when they were completely asymptomatic.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a good advice. And so for more of Michael's thoughts on this issue, these studies, and kind of background information, you should definitely check out this month's research review. It is jam-packed full of information, as you'll hear from the rest of our guests. Mike, is there anything that you want to tell the listeners at home about the research review? Because I know this was your baby, this was your pet project, and uh, anything you want to send them home with?
3: I think if they're looking for something that has a lot of topics being discussed, like not just pain and rehab, but with you and Austin on board, there's also discussions of like medication. I know the one month you guys wrote a really lengthy article on statin usage, which was super informative just for me. Um, So I know like if you're looking for something that talks about pain and rehab and health and uh, fitness and training and medication usage and medicine, like this really does, obviously I'm biased, but it has, a, a lot of topics getting discussed by all of us collectively, and I think it's probably people's best bang for their buck to keep up on the research and then apply that to how it relates to their life and practice.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think you know people always ask us they're like, well, how do we, you know, how do we make the research more accessible to ourselves? You know, how do we go about finding articles to read and interpreting them, and etc. And I think this is one of those uh, resources that I'm not going to say cuts off the learning curve because. That's the wrong. That's the wrong model. Like I was talking about this earlier day with somebody. Um, you want a steep learning curve, because yeah. if you have a steep learning curve, that means you're learning very quickly, right? What you don't want is a flat, drawn out, arduous learning curve that takes you forever to develop some modicum of expertise. What you want is something that's rapid and that you can kind of like ascend, 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 and 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 gain some proficiency. So if you're looking for a resource, a resource that you know helps tip this learning curve to be more steep so that you can ascend it, uh, this would be one of those things because we're able to take uh you know very specific topics we usually pick a, a research review an article that's either randomized controlled trial or some other sort of study and then break it down and give background information and contextual information i think this is one of those things where it would it greatly benefits the reader um and we all have our own pet sort of uh interests and so i do think that this dif- this differs from um, you know some of the other resources out there because uh it's not just all about strength conditioning high level performance there's a medical end. there's nutrition there's pain science there's rehab stuff it's all there so in any event enough of our pitch if you guys are interested you can check out the first uh issue of the year it's available for free it's and i've linked that in the show notes below and then if you're interested in subscribing you guys can do that too mike thanks for joining us absolutely thanks jordan right that's it for the barbell medicine research review podcast once again i'm your host dr jordan Feigenbaum, and this is barbell medicine where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine if you like this podcast make sure you leave us a five star rating and a review on itunes and tell your friends really helps direct traffic towards this wonderful resource and we thank you guys again for listening catch you next time